This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 198, Disaster. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week, we watch an episode of Star Trek and talk about an episode of Star Trek. Provided our computers don't melt, Netflix isn't down, we haven't poked ourselves in the eyes with something, or lost the ability to speak. Then, it's disaster. Yes, Ken, disaster. Today's episode, the one where we justify why Picard hates kids. Oh, kids. I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. If you do, though, and want to tell us, there are a few ways you can do it. Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you want to leave us a voicemail, we'd love to hear from you. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents and pictures and places to leave other comments, is missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. All right, Ken, today's trivia for disaster. Disaster! (laughs) Will that be our thing now? I don't know. It might be. Could it be the the ultimate disaster? Oh, they should make that one. They really should. (laughs) They shouldn't be. (laughs) All right, today's story was written by Ron Jarvis and Philip A. Scorza, but the teleplay and really most of the credit here goes to Ronald D. Moore. Now, the whole intention of the episode was to have a little fun, break up the routine, and while they're at it, do what Ron Moore said he wanted to do, which was a tribute to disaster movies. See Towering Inferno, Airport 77, or my favorite, The Poseidon Adventure. And no, Shelley Winters was not approached to play a role in this episode. Now, uh, we do have a listener who also pointed out that it's not just those great disaster adventure movies that were being, oh, say, paid homage here. Think also back to the 1978 Battlestar Galactica episode, Fire in Space, which is pretty much a riff on disaster movies. So now you know where we are in context. (laughs) And today's episode was directed by Gabrielle Beaumont. And we discussed Gabrielle before. She got her start on British TV like The Tomorrow People. She moved on to United States television directing shows like MASH, Heart to Heart, Hotel, so much more. Um, She got her start on... Star Trek Next Generation with an episode. Oh, it's two words, ends in trap. Um, Ultimate trap. That, that was the one. That okay. was the one. Thank you. No yes. problem. Good job, Ken. All right. Now, uh, the DVD and Blu-ray special features for this episode reveal some cool stuff about special effects. Uh, the containers, I, I really like this one. The containers get sucked out of the cargo area where miniatures filmed on their side and then just allowed to fall out of frame. So we've talked about this before, I think, where a lot of the uh, shots of spaceships, particularly if something's going to explode, you actually film it from underneath. 
So then the debris falls toward the camera and you don't have that problem that you would have with those, say, gravity <laughs> playing a role. And then you see pieces of a bottle kit falling if you were to film it straight on. Well, in this case, they did a very cool thing where they had those miniatures filmed it on its side. So they just fall naturally. But then when you write the frame, it looks like they're getting sucked out of the cargo hatch. I thought that was a really neat little thing there. And uh, Jordy here sings a short bit from the major general song from Gilbert and Sullivan's Pirates of Penzance. Now, that show premiered in New York in 1879, and that song has kind of taken on a pop culture life of its own. It has been referenced many times in many different places. So even if you don't know the show Pirates and Penzance and you don't know the collected works of Gilbert and Sullivan or your 19th century operettas, well, you might have heard pieces of this one. Now, my personal favorite reference is in the movie Megaforce. Uh, spoken by Barry Bostwick about Edward Mulhair, calling him the very model of a modern major general. Now, we have a comment from listener Earl again, who mentions that the writer's technical manual, which is exactly what it sounds like. Of course, there was a technical manual that was written for consumers, but then in-house, there was a technical manual for the writers. They could use that to kind of get ideas about how to tech the tech, but they could get other ideas about, well, what what imminent disaster, to use a word, would the Enterprise crew face this week? And they could kind of pull this one out as they did. There is indeed a section here called Celestial Bestiary, which talks about random problems the crew might encounter just by being in space. And one of those is the interstellar string or super string, which is described as one proton wide and potentially light years long. And according to the description, it could slice a ship in half or cut a planet to ribbons. Now, Troy does mention the string in the loss. And we see here that this is a little bit different in this episode. She actually mentions that time in this episode. And we are reminded that this is something different. Now, on to guest stars. Well, we have Rosalind Chow back as Keiko, and we have Michelle Forbes as Ensign Rowe. But they are recurring characters now, so not really in the guest star category anymore. But who is new for this episode is Les Enfants, the children. <laughs> we have John Grass as Jay Grass. John worked very steadily as an actor, starting professionally when he was about eight years old. Credits range from L.A. Law, Quantum Leap, Murphy Brown, E.R. He was the voice of Linus Van Pelt in a 1992 Charlie Brown Christmas special. And after the 1990s, his credits kind of come to an end, and apparently he joined the Marines in 2010. We have Max Supera as Patterson Supera. Max has a short professional acting career with one credit prior to Next Generation and then two guest spots on Doogie Howser, M.D. And finally, we have Erica Flores as Marissa Flores. Erica has a full career as an actor. Certainly, Star Trek actually is pretty early in her professional life. And very soon after that, she became a regular on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman as Colleen Cooper. After that, with a little time off in between, she appears on House, CSI Miami, and yes, Love Boat, The Next Wave. I hate to be this guy. Mm -hmm. It's not Jay Grass. It's Jay Gordon Grass. <laughs> it is Jay Gordon Grass. They do call him Jay Gordon. The listeners, John, Ken, and the computer, are each in their places as we begin this episode. 
prologue. The Enterprise has nothing to do, so everyone is pursuing leisure activities. Keiko and Miles O'Brien are bickering and tend forward about what to name their baby, which should be born in about a month. Anyway, they're bickering until Miles has to go to the bridge for a transporter simulation. He'll leave Keiko with Riker and Data. Dr. Crusher is in the cargo bay with Geordi, trying to get him to agree to be in a production of The Pirates of Penzance. Finally, Captain Picard is giving the three winners of the Primary School Science Fair a tour of the Enterprise. They want to see the Battle Bridge. He'll be taking them to hydroponics. The students have been delivered by Counselor Troy to the bridge. Now Picard and the kids are off in the turbo lift to start their tour. That's where the players are placed when disaster strikes, or when the Enterprise strikes a quantum filament. Primary life support's down, impulse and warp engines are offline, but it'll be okay. Lieutenant Monroe is in command, and she's calling the necessary shots. Until the ship hits another quantum filament, blowing up her terminal, sending her flying, and sending us to the opening credits. Act 1. The Enterprise computer is down. They've got impulse engines, but no way to control them. All eyes turn to in-command Lieutenant Monroe, oh, who it turns out kind of died. Turbo lifts are inoperative, so Miles, Troy, and Ensign Mandel are trapped on the bridge. In the turbo lift, Captain Picard is injured. His ankle's broken. Worse still, he's stuck with the three crying science kids. A sense of doom sets in among the youngsters. Captain Picard orders them to stop crying, which makes them cry more. Back on the bridge, we've added a fourth. Ensign Rowe has found her way through a turbo shaft onto the bridge. She and Miles figure the ship has initiated isolation protocol, something with which Troy is unfamiliar. Basically, if the computer senses a hull breach, it locks everything down until the coast is clear. Everybody is stuck where they are. With partial sensors back online, Ensign Mandel says he's picking up life signs around the ship, though he can't say exactly where nor exactly how many. Same goes for Troy, who it turns out is now in command. Lieutenant Monroe was the duty officer. With her gone, Troy's rank as lieutenant commander makes her the senior officer on the bridge. She says she's uh, open to suggestions as to what to do next. She gets them, indicates that they should be made so, and command may not be that big a deal. Back in 10 forward, Worf is tending the wounded. Keiko's looking shaky, but she'll be okay. Data has ordered any wounded that can get to 10 forward to get to 10 forward since access to sick bay is cut off. Riker says they have to assume that everyone on the bridge is dead. Data says their next step should be to get to engineering and retake control of the ship. They leave Worf to tend the wounded and begin making their way. In the cargo bay, Geordi and Dr. Crusher are trying to get out of the cargo bay. Crusher notices a really hot wall, which then blows out a control panel. Geordi says it's a plasma fire. Crusher says it's putting on a lot of radiation. If they stay much longer, they'll die. Geordi says they get a bigger problem than that. The cargo bay is full of containers of carotum. Exposed to radiation, they get explody. Individual disasters established. We had to break. Act 2. In the turbo lift, Picard decides to work with the kids rather than ordering them around. He makes them officers. The oldest, Marissa, is now his number one. Jay Gordon will be the science officer. And, of course, the other kid, Patterson, wants to be an officer now, too. So, we have a team. Riker and Data are crawling through a crawl way to get to engineering. It's not an uneventful crawl, though. There's a coolant leak behind them and an energy field ahead. In the cargo bay, Crusher and Geordi move the containers of Karatum as far from the plasma fire as possible, buying themselves a bit more time. On the bridge, Troy is learning how much she doesn't know about both science and command. 
Henson Row has crossed Circuit A to Circuit Z or something else highly irregular, making miles rather cross. What Roe did was dangerous, though she says they're not going to get out of this by playing it safe. Troy's going to let this one ride. Besides, they have bigger issues. Roe says the warp containment field is on its way to collapse. It's at 40% now. If it falls to 15%, the ship will explode. Act 3. In the crawlway, Data says he can't kill the energy field. Well, not with switches anyway. What he can do is walk straight into it. His body is non-conductive. It'll break the circuit. His head is sort of insulated, so his positronic brain will be fine. All Riker has to do is take off Data's head once the field is down and take that with him to engineering. And with that, Data gets fried. The energy field is collapsed. Data's head is still working, so stops going as planned. In the turbo lift, Picard has lifted Jay Gordon to the roof. He says one of the brakes holding the lift in place is broken. Not good. Picard says the kids need to start climbing. Because of his broken ankle, he'll have to stay behind. He orders number one to get moving, but her junior officers don't want to leave the captain, and neither does she. She respectfully informs the captain that the crew has decided to stick together. We all go, or we all stay. Picard says he'll try, but this is mutiny. He sets her to work on some project before they go. In the cargo bay, the Karatum has been moved, but that's not a solution, it's just a stall. Jordy has an idea that'll get rid of the Karatum and put out the plasma fire. Open the cargo bay door to the vastness of space. That'll suck out the Karatum and the oxygen, killing the fire. And them. Unless they hang on tight, shut the door really fast, and repressurize the bay. In 10 forward, surprise, Keiko's going into labor. Worf says this is not a good time. Oddly enough, that doesn't stop it. Act 4. Hey, remember when Roe and Miles were pretty much getting along? Command was easy then. Troy is finding it more challenging now that the two have opposite ideas of what to do next. Miles wants to keep the Enterprise together until the warp containment field is critically low, while Roe wants to separate the saucer section now and put some distance between it and the drive section to ensure their safety. This despite the fact that they have no idea whether anyone is alive in that part of the ship. Miles says there may be people there. Rose says there may not be. But even if she were down there, she'd expect to see the saucer section sailing off. Troy has a plan. Miles will divert power from the bridge to engineering. That way, if there is anyone in engineering, they can stabilize the containment field from there. Roe argues again that there's no guarantee that anyone's alive down there, but Troy says she thinks there is, and she's going to give them every chance. Roe makes one more argument. You could be killing us all. Thanks, Ensign. You have your orders. In the turbo shop, Picard and his two young crew are climbing away from the lift slowly. Broken ankle, you know. Still, it turns out to have been better than the alternative. The turbo lift falls, but they're safe. And they're all tethered together. The project number one had been working on was pulling cable to secure them all. They all go, or they all stay. Patterson is scared, so Picard suggests a sing-along. Number one suggests one of her favorites, the laughing Vulcan and his dog. Picard doesn't know that one, so they sing Frere Jaca instead. In 10 forward, Keiko's labor is really kicking in. It's okay. Worf has done this before at Starfleet in the simulation. It's more difficult than the simulation indicated. 
I have a feeling a stern letter to Starfleet Command is in order. In the cargo bay, Geordi and Crusher are going to blow out the cargo bay. Then, they blow out the cargo bay. Out go the fire and the carotum. And the oxygen. It's close. But they get the door closed and the cabin repressurized. Act 5. On the bridge, Rose says warp containment is down to 20%. We should go. Miles says they don't have to worry until 15%. Troy staying firm, though she does make sure that Roe has prepared saucer separation. Then the containment field nearly collapses. They're able to fix it, but seriously, says Roe, we need to get out of here. Troy makes her position clear. They will not separate until she says so. She's in command. Hey, remember how it was just a hope that anyone in engineering would know that Miles had routed power from the bridge to engineering so that they would see the trouble with the containment field and stabilize it? Good thing it was Riker and Data's head that got there. It's Data's positronic hookup that lets him know the power is being rerouted, indicating that there's something that they need to see. And there it is. The warp containment field is giving way. Riker's going to have to rewire Data's head for him to stabilize the field, which he does, and Data does. On the bridge, they see that the message has gotten through and that the field is stabilizing. Ensign Rowe apologizes to Troy. She was wrong. Showing a decent command of command, Troy admits that Rowe could have easily been right. In a hallway, Picard and the kids are on the floor. They've made it out of the turbo shaft. In 10 Ford, Keiko has her baby. It's a girl, and she's fine. Time passes. The ship is on its way to Starbase 67 for repairs. Things are returning to normal. The captain receives a dedication plaque from his turbolift crew for helping them through the disaster. He promises them that they'll get the tour that they never got to complete. It'll begin on the battle bridge. The end. Uh, and then Picard took that thing and he was like, where am I going to put this plaque? It doesn't look good in my cabin. He's going actually. What number he's gonna, one, would you like to keep this? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which number one would it be yeah. though? Because that's the joke, of course. I'm actually figuring what the, his next stop after this was. He had to go to the replicator store to get a mm-hmm. fridge for his cabin, so he could put that on mm-hmm. the fridge. Yeah, right. Because that's exactly, exactly where that would go. Yeah, with a giant Fred Flintstone magnet, you would just be stuck to it. <laughs> Maybe yeah. so. Or if you want a little uh, retro sci-fi fun, uh, the Jetsons. Speaking of uh, retro sci-fi, by mm-hmm. the way, Positronic Hookup, that is my flock of Seagulls yeah. cover band. Uh, we're at the rickshaw stop oh. every Friday at 10. Um, we go mm-hmm. on right after Silicon Avatar, which is my other you know, cover band that I mentioned yeah. last Missing week. Persons band. Yeah, Missing Persons perfect. cover band. Yeah, so uh, it, it's really a yeah. full night for me on Fridays. I thought uh, there was a thing that I left out of trivia. Um, I thought it was interesting that one of the first ideas floated around would be that the Enterprise would collide with an asteroid. Mm -hmm. But come on, they they would totally see that coming and they've dodged all kinds of other objects before. And uh, seemingly, even if they didn't see the asteroid in time, which they would, Mm -hmm. uh, the deflector shields probably do a good enough job. There would probably be enough warning ahead of time. Um, So a quantum filament is a made up thing. But the thing that I like about that being so tiny is that it's kind of like what goes on in real life. Uh, we read about this in, you know, the science press, and they talk about in the real world how spacecraft 
doctrine like the International Space Station are more threatened by radiation and tiny micro meteoroids, basically dust. You know, the tiny, tiny dust in space is really more of a concern than anything because these vehicles are just constantly bombarded all the time. Hmm. Um, so I, I kind of like the idea that something so minuscule would cause such a threat on, uh, on such a big level. You like that idea, do you? I do. I thought it, well, right. I think it was a better idea than uh, It's than, a much better than idea an than asteroid. an asteroid, yeah, because even if they can't see the asteroid coming for some reason, they would still be able to see it leaving. I mean, they'd be able to get a clear idea of what had happened. So, yeah, better that it yeah. was, that they were basically hit by a no but a very, you know, dangerous one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and if you couldn't see an asteroid coming, then everybody in the bridge crew gets fired. That's true. Really. Yeah. There's like six people in there at all times looking out the giant window into space. <laughs> That's so, true. Yeah. Plus, they've got a bar <laughs> called Ten Ford, which I'm right? guessing has a, like a view, you know, Ford. Yes. Just yeah. a thought. Yeah. And, and Gaina doesn't hesitate when she senses a problem. That's She'd be like, hey, no, Picard, really, you have to listen to me this time. Giant meteor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, last week or not, not last week, but the week before when we talked about Ensign Rowe and, um, and I was... I definitely felt like the other crew gave her a hard time. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, she did some terrible things on her away mission that landed her in prison. And by the way, you never got into the whole idea of what a prison for the Federation in the 24th century would look like. But anyway, um, but I, I kind of gave them a hard time. And now I think after watching this episode, I have a better understanding of why you might keep your distance from Ensign Rowe. She was so ready to separate from the other section. And I thought, you know, the whole trial, the whole court martial must have been so. Eight people died on your away mission. And she was like, yeah, they were slow and couldn't keep up. I left them. <laughs> you know, That's, I think it gives us a little bit of indication as to how she is. Well, we have so, no idea what happened there. We have, yeah, we well, have no I'm, idea what I'm happened I'm just going to put together the pieces. Yeah. All right. See, we're going to have to come back actually uh, to her to her course of action or the course of action she wanted to take. But, but actually, I had a bigger question around everybody's disasters. Right. Yep. Uh, in the cargo bay, when Beverly feels the heat coming off the wall, mm-hmm. how did Jordy not see that? Yeah, it seems like he would have seen that way earlier. That is, that's like what his visor is for, right? I mean, it's to yes. let him see, but it sees on like all kinds of different frequencies and all kinds of different registers that we don't. And then she says, mm-hmm. oh, Jordy, this wall is hot. And he says, where? So like even when he yeah, looks over, right. he still doesn't see it. And yet it's hot because she can feel it. So he should still be able to see it. I think maybe he just brought up the lyrics in Wikipedia to Modern Major General and he kept studying that. <laughs> it's like, no, 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 wait, 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 I'm on a second stanza. Oh, it's hot? Oh, okay, well, we'll step away, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought, uh, I, we're going to talk about the kids yeah. uh, probably a few times here. And, you know, I thought the kids in the turbo lift, they have every right to be scared mm-hmm. in a broken, falling elevator. I would be terrified of that, no question about it. Yeah. But then I asked myself, well, what kind of reaction did these kids have, oh, say, like the times we almost blew up the Enterprise? Or, say, the time that the Borg were invading and literally slicing pieces out of the ship? Yeah. Or anything else? It's a good question. I have no answer yeah. for you. No. Sorry. Yeah. I, mean, maybe, I, I, I wouldn't think you would. Yeah, maybe they the, thought they could get away from those things, but there's obviously no getting away once you're inside this turbo lift. 
I mean, right? that's the only thing I can think yeah. of. Either that, or they're just constantly afraid. I mean, it, it really is. <laughs> right. It really is a question. I mean, Jeremy Astor seemed like a pretty together kid. He didn't seem like he was mm-hmm. afraid of everything. But these kids might be, and yet these kids are the science kids. You'd think they would try to, you know, start trying to science the science out of stuff and and figure out how to get out of there, as opposed to standing around right. waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. The science kids coming on NBC <laughs> this fall, Saturdays at eight. Worf is terrific in this. He, yes. He's got some of the best lines in it. Um, really, you know, I, I've always said that he maybe wasn't my favorite character on this show, but man, does he get some terrific moments from time to time. And this episode is full of terrific moments for him. It is. Uh, also, uh, Laughing Vulcan and his dog, it just sounds like a setup for trouble. Uh, the idea of a Laughing Vulcan with a dog. Um <laughs> The fact that you would turn that into a song is probably just a horribly bigoted song. I'm glad we didn't hear it. Why would that? You know? No. Oh, uh, you're so wrong. I want to hear the no? Laughing Vulcan and his dog. I mean, here's the thing. I actually wanted to be yeah. the Laughing Vulcan and his Salot because, you know, let's, oh, well, yeah. let's be honest, just, right? Yeah. But I mean, I uh, want to hear this song. I may even want to write this song. I, I just, mm. I love the idea of the laughing because you know what we've always said about smiling Vulcans. Yeah, they're up to no good. It's just trouble from the word go. So, I mean... They so, are to be feared and so, avoided. So now throw in a dog, and you've got something uh, there, my friend. Danger. Danger all around. You know who could have yeah. done that song, Some True Justice? LQ Sonny Clemens. Oh, he could have, <laughs> yeah. He absolutely. Yeah. That has absolutely. got to be on his next album. That has got to be on his next album. <laughs> Maybe maybe he wrote it and he left that behind at the end of season one. And these kids are like, man, did you hear about the guy who's no. from the 20th century? I was thinking he might actually say, this is an old classic from 200 years after I died. Because, yeah. you know, that'll just blow people's minds. Right. They'll think, oh, Sonny's drunk again. Or wait a minute, is yeah. he oh, is he oh, blowing Lord. my mind? He might yeah. be. Yeah, he might be. Ready to blow your mind again. Ken, there is an officer in charge of radishes. Mm-hmm. And nobody in the potato department was aware of this. If we were a bleeping show, I'd be bleeping right now. Yeah. I know. Right you right? Would. How is that? How is that not? Maybe it's because they're two of us. You think that's it? They won't promote maybe. one above the other? They don't want to pit us against each other. It could be yeah. that. I get it. I yeah. get it. I, I was wondering, you know, of course, something about this episode is that you you have to create these instances where every good idea that they have to solve the problem is immediately negated by something very bad that will happen, mm-hmm. you know? Now, we've seen the primary hull separate before a few times. We know that this is a thing that the ship can do. And it, it's not maybe easy, but it's a thing. Like, it's prepared to do that. And I thought, well, well, maybe under other circumstances, it actually would have been a great idea to separate the hulls or launch some shuttles or something to get an outside view of the damage, get an outside view of maybe what you could do to the ship. You know, uh, Rose is making assumptions. I know we'll come back to Rose. Rose is making assumptions about who's alive and who's dead and who could live and who could die. But it just seems like, hey, well, if we if we get out of here, if we separate and we go take a look, we could swing around and look in a window because there's windows literally everywhere on this ship get an idea maybe somebody's put up a sign in one of the windows saying still alive you see i think that's true if you can take a shuttle but i don't think you can take the whole saucer section and get that close to a window it doesn't have to be close but i I, you know i'm sure that they have monitors scanners you know they they could they could get a look i think you're overthinking it oh i'm totally overthinking okay good all right that's what we do because seriously i was about to start arguing and then i'm like yeah this is this really worth is it worth it Mm. yeah no 
Not at all. A um, little disappointed that uh, Worf didn't cut the umbilical cord with his teeth. I thought that would have been a very Klingon moment for him. Interesting. Although I would have settled for one of those knives, you know, with like the two blades that come out of the side of the big blade. That would. Oh been yeah, because I always well. do a dramatic close up of that. When that <laughs> exactly. happens. Exactly. Like the Klingon switchblade, just like I got this. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you carry that everywhere, do you? Okay, thank you. <clears throat> I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much more of the Enterprise stuff will come back to, but there is something just weird about the entire ship being disabled, every single room, every single area, every single system. I know that's the story that we have to tell here because that's the story that they wrote, but but no redundancy, no communication, no way to seal off anything. And and apparently, if you watch this, there's nobody else on board. <laughs> it's just a ship with a thousand people, and we've got our crew, and we got three kids. That's pretty much who we've got. They're the people that we're concerned about, right? Everybody else is probably just sitting tight, like, you know, figuring this Which, will pass. Because, I mean, you say there's no way to seal everything off. I mean, that's the one thing mm-hmm. the, sh- the computer actually did. It sealed everything oh, off. Oh, well, yeah, it, it sealed off areas. Yeah, yeah. But well, then, yeah, like I said you, you couldn't talk to anybody. You don't hear a guy, say, from another room, like, tapping on the wall going, uh, hey, we're, we're, we're in here. <laughs> you know, they might be sitting tight, but you would think that they've all gone through some kind of training that says... If the ship doesn't work, here's what you do. This actually, okay, Ronald Moore actually said he wanted to do a disaster movie. This could have been a whole season. I mean, because you're right. Oh, yeah. There are a thousand people on the ship, you know, Mm -hmm. break them all up. So how many people did we deal with today? Maybe 15. So divide that Mm -hmm. by a thousand, you got that many more episodes. Yeah, right. Where were you when Enterprise struck disaster? Eh, Peeling potatoes with John. (laughs) That's it. It's it's like a whole day of us going, man, is anybody going to eat these? Because they're just like piling up over here and we just keep... Keep doing that. I do have an idea, though. I'm going to try to work this up the chain of command so that, you know, say in future Starship designs, they know to do this. Make sure that there is a turn on the air button literally everywhere. You know, just put it everywhere because Dr. Crusher has to, like, get clear across the room to turn on the air again. Mm hmm. And it seems like turning on the air is the kind of thing that you want to have within an arm's reach. Or or better yet, since L cars are context sensitive, you just hit a button and then that panel becomes whatever you want that panel to become. Build your own control workflow. Have a turn on the air button that's just right there, Jordy. Roughly halfway through the episode, it is up to the listeners, John, Ken, and the computer to work toward resolution. understand this is a disaster movie i get that it's you know that formula i understand i actually considered briefly a different recap for this show you want to hear it okay go ahead it won't take long uh act one established locations before disaster act two established problems act three established solutions act four enact solutions part one act five enact solutions part two we could have so much time. Yeah, yeah, it would have been it would have been quick and easy. Now, I mean, we do get some little character moments here and there, mm-hmm. but there's um, there's a there's a formula about the show that you may not pick up on immediately the first time you watch it, mm-hmm. but if you happen to have the good fortune of needing to watch it two or three times <laughs> <laughs> over a couple of days, boy, oh boy, is that cookie cutter? Yeah. 
this is one of those cases where you kind of wish that you were a fly on the wall in the writer's room and this is coming together because did did they sit around and say like, oh, hey, remember that scene in the Poseidon Adventure when the guy does this and they got to go up the stairs and then Shelley Winters has to swim? That falls at this point in the movie. Mm-hmm. So how far along do we make our characters go? before they start to resolve the problem, knowing that we've got 48 minutes to do it and we've got to land at this point. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what they do here. It is an interesting idea to kind of write to the formula um, rather than maybe just deciding ahead of time, well, what does character arc necessitate of the story? You know? I almost wish they had done something where, and maybe this is for the next segment, I don't know, but I almost wish they had done something where they had told us four different stories. Like, what was that? What was that that comedy that came out in the early 90s, uh, Four Rooms or something like that, about a bellhop in a hotel, and we were seeing four different stories that were going on concurrently? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, right. That doesn't matter because things like this happen all the time. I mean, uh, these, but this whole, like, Okay, let's put everybody in trouble. Okay, let's have everybody solve their thing. Okay, let's have everybody enact their solution. Okay, let's have everybody be fine. I mean, that really is what mm-hmm. it is. And you, you can match almost every scene. The only one that doesn't work with that is uh, Crusher and Jordy get out of their issue in Act 4. Everybody else it takes right. until Act 5. And it's like, right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I, I don't mean to sound... I apologize. I'm not... I'm not impressed with the structure. I mean, there are character things that we'll get to, and we can go ahead and start on some of those if you want to, but just, yeah. Well, I, I think I the difficulty is I think I've actually that, jumped ahead. Go ahead. No, no, but I, I think that's okay, because we, we have to get it out front right away that this episode is the story structure. I mean, exactly. it really is, you know? So that's the kind of stuff that we get to analyze here rather than what we normally do in this segment and and that's okay you know we we always appreciate when star trek sort of breaks out of what we expect of it Mm -hmm. and like i said back in the trivia well that's what they wanted to do they wanted to write something that would not be predictable star trek formula just to it's sort of like doing a mirror universe episode or something like that where you just sort of break down all the barriers and say here we're doing something different so mm-hmm. cool. So they, they did that here. And, and I respect the intention of doing that. OK, do me a favor. We have to come back and address whether or not they actually did that in the next segment, because I'm not sure. I'm not 100 percent certain yeah. that they did, but we can talk about that because we need to get to the other stuff. OK, well, let's talk about character stuff then. Um, okay. Right. Right off the bat, I'm a bit conflicted about Keiko, <laughs> uh, because here's the thing. I love the idea of exploring family life in the 24th century. I really do. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of giving our characters a bit more depth than just their jobs. And interesting choice to give that to O'Brien, who sort of appears here and there, but he's around enough that that you expect him from week to week. But he's not as well developed as some of the other characters on the show. Yeah. Um, So that's fine. We're going to explore his character a little bit more, give him a little more depth, and we'll do that by exploring his family life a little bit. But my problem so far, and I understand that there is more Keiko to come, but my problem so far is that she just seems written badly, Mm -hmm. like they've been watching too many sitcoms. You know, we have this bizarrely rushed marriage <laughs> where we, we meet a character that we have never met before like oh and and she's getting married okay well i i wish i had known that they were dating but so be it 
Right. Now they're getting married. And then before you know it, they're arguing at breakfast. And then before you know it, uh, Miles has this weird jealous spout because of the, well, the, the, the condition that the crew are suffering at the time. But that's how his manifested itself. Right. And and then the next thing you know, oh, they're they're having a baby. Oh, OK. Yes. <laughs> so so they are. And it feels very situational. Um, and I really just wish that we knew more about Keiko before we got to that point, because it feels very by rote. Yeah. And then when we finally see her on screen, it's not even the whole, you know, how to deal with it or, you know, the big changes that are coming. It's them mm-hmm. doing the stupid argument about, I thought we were naming him after my father. I thought we were naming him after mine. Uh, it's, yeah. like, it's, it's, yeah. you're right. It's very, it's very, uh, it's very sitcom, as you say, but not even like good sitcom. The good sitcom is when Worf is, you know, doing his whole thing. Have you done this before? <laughs> right. Yes. No. No. <laughs> it's actually very, it's actually very cute. Uh, as you, as, yeah. you, as you mentioned yeah. earlier, so yeah, there is sitcom with Keiko. It's just not what the uh, person at the sitcom is supposed to be happening. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate, and and it's another one of those situations where you just think, man, what? How did they discuss this in the writers' room, where they just said, well, well, we've got Keiko, so pregnant, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it just seems a little odd. I, I felt like with the kids, uh, there were some very good moments. Um, uh, some great moments actually with them and then there were some really terrible moments Mm -hmm. and I felt bad for Marissa because it just seemed to me again going back to the idea of the writers in the writers room just saying like okay here's a character just defined by this one thing I feel like the writers look at Marissa and they say okay uh, she's shy maybe going through some preteen angst slash depression okay yeah we're good to go that defines that character let's move on See, that's interesting because I actually found her very believable. But I have to ask you a weird question. When's the last time you hung out with like a 10 to 13-year-old girl? (laughs) It's been a very, very long time. Yeah. See, I've got a niece who uh, is my niece by marriage. So, I mean, I've been around since she was like one and a half, two years old. But, you know, I I see her very rarely. We don't live in the same part of the country or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's really only been in the last year or two, eh, maybe three now. That I that, that she and I have actually been able to talk, and hmm. it's because I started. I just I didn't like I, I, these weird things would happen where you know somebody would say something about boys and she would look at me like you know like I'm her little brother as well. Mm-hmm. She just had no use for talking to me or whatever. So finally, I just talked. I started talking to her instead of talking to her like a ten or eleven year old. I started talking to her like a person. And mm-hmm. eventually mm-hmm. she started talking to me as well. And now we have an okay conversation. I mean, have a, an okay relationship, an okay conversation. She's also obviously gotten a little bit older as we've gone. But but right. but right. Uh, Marissa was actually a fairly believable character to me because, I guess, because of having dealt with a relatively similar situation. Except, of course, you know, instead of being like an older uncle or whatever, he is in charge of everybody's life. <laughs> I mean, she's right. going to be a little reticent right. to say something, I think. Um, I didn't need a tremendous amount of exploration on her part to see where she was coming from, especially because once Picard started talking to her, not like, oh, well, you're a weird thing I don't understand, but instead talking to her like, hey, I need help. You're going to help me. I mean, she's right there all of a sudden. And but I think that's part of it. And, and I do like that. I, I liked where she finally came out of her shell. And it was because of the, the Picard moments, you know, all, all of that made great sense to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's I don't know, maybe it's asking too much out of a show like this particular one. 
I just felt like when you introduce uh, these two precocious boys and then you got the girl in the middle who's just so, so uncomfortable, so painful, I kept thinking, man, why is she like that? And and do do we need to understand why she's like this and what's going on there? I I understand that it is just sort of a thing that, that there are kids, boys and girls, who at a certain age may just sort of not be comfortable with themselves, comfortable with adults, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. I felt like this was such a thing in this episode because it was so severe. I honestly thought that it was going to go in a different direction where there needed to be some breakthrough about her, <laughs> not just, okay, there's a breakthrough. She can talk to Picard. He can relate to her and we move on with the story. You know, again, maybe far too much to fit into 48 minutes. Hmm. But because we didn't really get that, then it seemed like just sort of uh, uh, a real shorthand for a character. Like, oh, okay, she's the the oldest of the kids, and then that's the girl. She's going to be depressed and full of preteen angst and shy and uncomfortable. So that's the character. Go. And then the direction is just to stare at the floor the whole time. It's... I'm telling you, I, man. I, I do saw understand. It, you know, I saw again, it in my it, life. I mean, I, I I understand what you're saying. Oh, yeah, it looks yeah, weird yeah. to you, but like having dealt with a kid like this relatively recently, I'm like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, mm-hmm. I know her. <laughs> That's my niece, yeah. with whom I now have a great, you know, with whom I now have a great relationship, and we can talk about stuff because basically because I kept trying other things <laughs> is really what it came down yeah. to. Which Picard did in this as well. So I don't. I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I mean, if it hadn't, if, I mean, if we hadn't had four other disasters running concurrently, maybe <laughs> yeah. then we could have had that. But um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, everybody in this episode is going to anybody who has a real issue in this episode is going to get short shrift. I would say because we got four other disasters to get to. Oh sure, yeah. Now I do like the idea of flipping the characters on their heads. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordy has an engineering problem to solve, but for the others. It's really taking them out of their comfort zones. Uh, Troy becomes the captain and has to deal with cold, hard realities rather than just sort of sensing emotions and then reporting those. Um, Picard is totally helpless and trapped with children, Mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure he's had horrible nightmares about before. Um, Worf has to be sensitive rather than a warrior, and thus comedy ensues. And then Data just gets cut off from the neck down, which uh, he seems totally okay with. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it, it's a logical thing, but uh, certainly Riker's reaction to that is pretty great. So that that is something kind of cool to put our characters through their paces by removing them from, uh, well, as I heard recently to describe a Star Trek movie, removing the connective tissue uh, between them, totally isolate them and then turn their... Uh, turn their worlds upside down this happens though even before we hit um before we hit the quantum filament or before we hit the disaster whatever you want to say Mm -hmm. i mean Mm -hmm. they're actually being put um in positions or or people are trying to take them out of their comfort zones i mean like picard does have to show the kids around uh which happens before anything goes wrong Uh, jordy is resistant to the idea of singing in front of people but crusher talks him into it so i mean we're, we're 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 leading off with nobody gets to do exactly what they want to do even when they're doing those mm-hmm. things right actually it seems to me the only characters from whom are the characters from whom we get the least are data and riker i mean crusher and laforge have more to do on paper but we certainly didn't see a lot of character development from them it was just you know work through the situation uh, really though data and riker got the least of it 
it seems. Because, oh, there's a coolant leak. Oh, there's a thing in front of us, but you can stop the thing in front of us. So really, we're good. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All the way through, which was kind of, you know, although they had a great, I, I thought their scene was actually fantastic in the crawl way. Not the one where they crawled fast, but the one where they're like, so listen, you're going to take off my head and it's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, for Riker, this is actually pretty great because, yeah, it's terribly trapped in a tight tube like that. And, and the rest of the ship is cut off and there's imminent danger all around. But really for Riker, it's like, OK, here's a scientific slash engineering problem. And I've got the robot. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. He's, he's not he's not stuck in there with an 11 year old. You know, so so that's pretty good. Um, maybe more interesting, given what we learned in the episode Ensign Row, that we could have stuck Riker with Ensign Row. Yeah, but then you'd have to cut off her head and put it on the thing so that they could connect to stuff, <laughs> well, and that's never going to well, work. Well, I certainly hope not. We'd have a lot less of Ensign Row around. We after would indeed. That. Yeah, um, I'm not even sure you yeah. could connect her to the computer and engineering either. No, that's just no, a bad idea all totally around. Different. Yeah face yeah um i do say that you know one of the first references that i turn to when i'm prepping a show is larry nimichek's the star trek next generation companion and um he had a just a, a little sentence in there about ensign row and he says that michael pillar said something that didn't work for him was the way they let ensign row quote lose a rough edge by apologizing to troy so quickly he, he thought that you know, they had brought in this character who was so rough, who was so much a misfit for the rest of the characters. And we see that tension a bit between her and Troy and O'Brien. Mm -hmm. But then she kind of has to say at the end, oh, yeah, look, I'm sorry, you were right. And and Troy rightfully says, hey, I could have been wrong. But they felt like that took something away from her. I don't know if I totally agree with that. I, I, I really like Ensign Roe. I like that she brings some conflict to our otherwise sort of perfect characters. But she also is from Starfleet. Yeah. She understands the chain of command and she understands that people get to make decisions that may be contrary to her wishes. So I can kind of let that one slide. Oh, I'd actually go further and say it has to happen anyway, because then she gets to see actually how good a commander Troy is. Mm -hmm. Troy made the call and Troy's call could yep. have been wrong. Troy's call ended up being right. And then when Roe apologizes, Troy could have said, and don't forget it. Or she could have said, that's what command is about. I mean, what she did was, you know, say, yeah, you know what? Could have been wrong, too. So way to go, you. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I mean, maybe it sort of softens Roe's edge. But on the other hand, it strengthens everything that, that Troy is. And it strengthens everything that Starfleet is. And so yeah. there's going to be a trade in how that exchange ends. Um, I, I think it was a good trade, though. The listeners, John, Ken, and the computer, have worked through disaster. Imagine my surprise. Disaster 91, starring Patrick Stewart and not Shelley Winters. Disaster, John. An episode of Star Trek, The Next Generation. Feels to me like a disaster movie would be right up your wheelhouse. Is it up your wheelhouse? In your wheelhouse. It, 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 is, it is up in my wheelhouse. It feels like it'd be somewhere around your wheelhouse. Uh, I don't yeah. know what that means, though, for a 48-minute for a TV show uh, that seeks to honor a two-hour disaster movie. So I ask you, John, uh, disaster, does this episode hold up? 
Well, <laughs> kind of like I said last week, it, it sort of depends on what you expect to get out of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an episode that is meant to be a character piece. We take the characters out of their comfort zones. We turn their worlds upside down and we see what happens. We see how they deal with it. But, you know, it's not particularly deep character episode like, say, Family, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Um then you can look at this and say, well, it's a disaster movie homage, which is fun, but the Poseidon adventure holds up way better. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, go just look up Irwin Allen on IMDb. If, if all you know is Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, well, his, you know, litany of disaster movies in the 70s are, are just fantastic. That sort of set the standard. Unfortunately, I think that whichever slice of that you're looking for, whether it's the character stuff, and there are great moments, like we said, Worf has great moments. I think Picard has some very good moments. Whether it's that that you're looking for or the disaster movie angle, neither of them really add up. They don't really hit full throttle at any point in this episode. It doesn't mean it's a bad episode. Mm-hmm. There, there's something here that I understand where people can enjoy it for sure. But in the end, it left me a little bit cold. It's not one that I can very heartily recommend. So I have to say no on this one. How about you, Ken? It's interesting. I guess it depends on, again, as you said, what you're looking for exactly. It's fine. It's completely inoffensive unless you're really bothered by the Keiko relationship um, <laughs> or the you know constant bickering between the two of them. It's got yeah. some interesting character moments, but not huge interesting character moments. Again, if you have to watch it two or three times in a row, it becomes very formulaic. I think it's, I mean, I think if you sat down and watched it, you'd be like, oh, okay. It's 48 minutes <laughs> or, <Yeah>. or an <laughs> right. hour with commercials. And, you know, that's okay. I mean, there's no reason to not recommend it, but there's really no reason to recommend it either. Um, I hate to sound like a like a jerk, but there's there's a bit of self indulgence about. It. I want to do a disaster movie. Well, okay, go do a disaster movie then. This is Star Trek, and and yeah. while it feels like yeah, you're in the middle of this show and you can make however many seasons, it's finite. And especially the way we watch it, I kind of want them all to be great. And I know they can't all be great, but I at least want them all to try to be great. I don't want them to try to be the reshoot of Psycho. I don't want them to yeah. try to be, you know, oh, this week, what was the, there was another one relatively recently, wasn't there? Where, oh, the Manchurian Candidate. Mm-hmm. I want to make the Manchurian mm-hmm. Candidate in space. Okay, well, go do that. We're doing Star Trek over here. Darn it. So, right. I mean, it's fine. And, and, and there are even messages, I would say, that are fairly Star Trek-y messages. But, I mean, when it's all over, it's sort of like, you know, okay, now I want to watch something really good. In a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's exactly it. Like, there's nothing offensively bad about this <laughs> yeah, episode. There's, there's not even anything bad about this episode. No, 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 no. It, it is fine. It's fine. <laughs> but it's so fine yeah. that I can't really recommend it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it absolutely is fine. It, it is just, it is hitting 100%. It is hitting peak fine. Yeah, what is the, uh, what, what's the joke from the player? What about the truth? What about the beauty? What about the way it tested in Canoga Park? Okay, this will test <laughs> right. fine in Canoga Park. There's nothing to offend anybody in this episode. Maybe the crying kids because they could have hired actors that could actually sound like they were crying. And maybe the Keiko thing. Otherwise, this is a completely inoffensive episode of Star Trek. And some of our favorite episodes of Star Trek are very offensive to some people. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> they're sure. also absolutely very yeah. empowering to other people. Um, and this one's just like, I mean, it is great. Uh, you know, say what you want to about the Poseidon Adventure. I don't think a lot of people see it as a deep reflection on the state of humanity. It's a disaster no. movie. And, and, and yeah, that's what you get out of this episode, but that's about it. Now, that said, there are messages. Um, what was the guy's name that Kirk took with them? Is it Tormelin that Kirk took with them to meet Balok? Oh, oh, yeah, uh, no. Um, it's not Tormelin. Who is it? Doesn't matter. No. We'll call him the guy yeah. who now lives on Balok's ship, hopefully. Fingers crossed <laughs> <laughs> that he actually lives. Um, yeah, when, when you actually challenge people to show up in a situation, they will. That's a very sort of Star Trek idea, right? When the situation calls for it, people who you might not expect to show up can show up. Uh, Picard can actually, you know, deal with these kids. Um, the kids can actually turn it around from being these crying things that are worried to to actually an effective team. Um, Troy is nowhere near fit for command at the beginning of this episode, except she, it turns out, is fit for command. She's just not quite ready for it, but she gets there. And, of course, Worf um, dealing with delivering a baby. Not, not what he woke up thinking he was going to do that day. So, I mean, there's yeah. definitely a message there about... When you expect the best from people, people will give you their best. Or when you expect something from people, they will actually show up for it. That's a message that we've hit. I wish I could remember specific episodes, but I know we've hit that before. Um, Mm -hmm. There's also an interesting message here about trying to save everyone. Uh, Roe, I don't think Roe was wrong, honestly. This is what I said we would get to later. Yeah. I don't know that she was wrong exactly, except, of course, she was wrong. Um, We wouldn't say that someone who saves 500 people without knowing whether there are another 500 people alive... I, I don't think we would say that they were wrong, and I don't think we would call them cowards. I think we would say, wow, you saved 500 people. Uh, I wish we could have saved the rest. Yeah, I do, too. But, okay, mm-hmm. but I mean, I don't think you call her anything bad there. But the person who risks their own safety to save 1,000 people, we call that person a hero. Now, I don't think either of them are wrong, honestly, but obviously in a Star Trek universe, and, and being the best that we're hopefully going to be, trying to be the best that we're going to be, we're going to try to save everybody. And so... That's a nice sort of aspirational message. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, Troy was ready to do it as well. Had it dropped down to 14%, everybody else would have sure. been left, and they would have taken the saucer away. So the, the not, you know, not just cutting and running, making sure that you can get everybody or work as hard as you can to get everybody um, to safety and then apply that you know, to greater things, making sure that you can get everybody to a level where they're actually you know, surviving or sustainable or something along those lines. Um, that's also a very Star Trek message, and it was a great, it was a, it was a good thing to see. And what honestly is otherwise a, a, an almost completely forgettable episode for me. Oh, well, should we, <laughs> should we say what Andy said? We had somebody write into us. Andy wrote into us to say that this actually is one of his favorite uh, Picard things ever. Oh wow! In this episode. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah right. Because uh, what is it like? You know, Kirk would always do some sort of like jump over a table to get someplace they could just as easily have walked to. Um, mm-hmm. There is a flagrant Picard, like pulling himself <laughs> up in the turbo lift door to get to the floor of right. the uh, uh, hallway when he had yep. been climbing a ladder the whole time. This was really just to show <laughs> off his arms. This was to show off his packs. This was to show off his upper body strength to show, you know, there's a little bit of Kirk and Picard as what Andy said. So I guess for one person out there, at least, this is not a completely forgettable episode. Uh, otherwise, um, I- Patrick Stewart was in. Yeah, he was in great shape. Yeah. And I do 
do not deny him that of uh, showing that off for the world to see. <laughs> Maybe not for a whole episode. Were there any other um, any other uh, messages, sir, that I missed or that you want to hit on? No. Well, I mean, I, I think I want to go back to the first one that you hit because it, it's. I look at that in the context of what Star Trek has done, which is to sort of celebrate this diversity. I read a great article one time. I think it was on Cracked. And they were they were talking about sort of the recent popularity in zombie apocalypse in popular fiction. Mm. You know, it's not just Night of Living Dead and stuff like that, but The Walking Dead being on TV and all. And uh, and they were picking apart, particularly The Walking Dead, because this is a show where they're constantly getting rid of other human beings, living human beings, uh, because they don't sort of fit in with the team or they might be dangerous or whatever. And this cracked article was saying, look, in reality, if you faced a terrible situation like that, everybody counts. Everybody is important. Because, Mm -hmm. sure, you want people like, you know, doctors and engineers and machinists and, you know, all these other people to be around. But you probably also want, like, the stock guy from Walgreens because he knows how to get into a Walgreens and where they keep stuff. (laughs) You probably also want the guy who can, like, cook burgers because that guy is important, (laughs) you know? So in this sort of Star Trek world, this sort of Star Trek context where we say that, like you said, everybody gets to show up, but everybody has a skill. And it takes a leader like Picard in this case to say, you know what, I don't have my regular team with me. I can't rely on Riker and Troy and Data and Geordi, et cetera. But I do have these new people with me. And sure, they're kids, there might be some limitations there, but there might also be some strengths there that we can use. So everybody does have a place at the table in that respect. And there is strength through that unity, strength through that diversity. So, um, yeah, I think that fits in very nicely with Star Trek messages quite a bit. So in that case, I have no problem saying that the messages hold up here. But this is one of those rare cases where we get to say the episode, maybe not so much, but the messages for sure. Yeah, I was going to say those are very Star Trek messages. And thankfully, there are tons of really good Star Trek episodes that deliver them. So, you know, if if you think, oh, I want to watch Star <laughs> Trek, maybe one that's about, yeah, go for one of those. I mean, it's not it's not terrible. Mm-hmm. You you won't. It, it's fine. You won't wish you had the 48 minutes back unless you have to repeat them two or three more times. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, at the same time, if you miss this episode, you it doesn't seem to me like you've missed a lot. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com, including upcoming information about conventions and appearances for the Roddenberry team, projects they're working on, like the Roddenberry Vault, very exciting, and much, much more. That's at Roddenberry.com. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. On the next episode of Mission Log, The Game. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. listeners, John, Ken, and the computer, should be immortalized somehow. Maybe on a t-shirt, or a patch.
and transmission.